Diana Henriquez is the author of five previous books, including The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff, and The Death of Trust. Originally from Bryan, Texas and Roanoke, Virginia, Ms. Henriquez spent 22 years as a reporter with The New York Times. In her latest book, Taming the Street, she writes in her preface, quote, My mission is to describe just one of the New Deal's most significant achievements, clearing out the vicious jungle that was the nation's financial landscape in the 1920s and replacing it with a well-tended terrain where ordinary Americans could save and invest with confidence. Diana Henriquez, what was it like interviewing Bernie Madoff in prison? It was kind of surreal, Brian, actually, because the normal tools of the reporter's trade by that point in time, which was in the, in the summer of 2010, um, you know, involved, you know, recorders, cell phones, that sort of thing. In the prison, uh, it was old school journalism. It was a, a pencil, a pen. They, they let me use a pen and a pad of paper. That was all I could bring in with me. So this was you know, taking me back to my baby days as a reporter, th- that intense focus on everything he said, trying to turn my brain into a, a motion picture camera so that I could replay it uh, and make sure that I had ev- everything down straight. So it was, a I didn't have room in my bandwidth to feel anything about it. I was just so completely focused on capturing it as a, as a journalist. There was no uh, tape recording to fall back on, no camera recording to fall back on. It was just just me and my memory and my note taking. So um, I will never forget it. I tell you, it it was such an intense experience. And uh, Bernie's lawyer was with me. Ike Sorkin was with me sitting in on it. And when we were done, of course, for a lawyer, that's that's kick back your heels time, you know, chit chat, whatever. And I kept saying, I don't say a word, don't say a word. I had to race right out to my rental car and go over my notes again while everything was vivid in my head and left him trailing behind me, unable to speak. So it was it was an extraordinary experience. And I'm so glad I did it because it's I mean, I had known Bernie for years before, but uh, as a source of mine on the street, but I'd never been in conversation with him where he was trying to sell me something. And he was trying to sell me his version of what happened here. And it was so illuminating into how his victims had had been pulled in. I, to, to get a sense of that persuasive power, that, uh, uh, you know, that, that seductiveness that he had was just priceless. Did you interview him before or after you wrote the book about him? I was about 95% of the way through the book. I had written 95% of the book. I'd been asking for an interview for him, uh, with him from the day he was arrested, actually, um, and was not granted. He said yes in the summer of 2010. Took another two months for the Bureau of Prisons to work it out. So I saw him in August of 2010. The book was due in October of 2010. So I, you know, I had given up on getting an interview with him. I had interviewed everybody else on the planet that I could find, assuming I was not going to have a chance to talk with Bernie. Um, 
And that actually redounded to my favor considerably because I didn't have to waste any time asking Bernie something I could have found out somewhere else. I'd, I'd already tracked it down. Part of the reason I'm asking you about this because we're going to talk about your new book because of your new book, I suspect you weren't able to interview anybody. Um, that's pretty much true. I mean, I interviewed some experts on the period. I interviewed uh, uh, some uh, law. Actually, I did meet a wonderful law professor out in Berkeley who had, as a young uh, law student, squired William O. Douglas around campus when uh, when he had uh, been out there to visit as an older uh, Supreme Court justice. So there were a few people I could connect with who had vivid personal memory of some of these people. Um, but no, it, this was a, I, I referred to it as an exercise of interviewing history, interviewing all of the relevant biographies, archives, letters, papers, speeches, everything that that is there about Roosevelt. And to my surprise, Brian, um, while there it seems like there is just this avalanche, this huge glacier of information about FDR, on the issue of his financial reforms and his commitment to those, which is the topic of Taming the Street, it, it, the volume shrunk uh, radically down. I was tracking down old, out-of-print books from the 1930s and the 1950s um, that had focused on this. Because once Roosevelt led us through the war, through World War II, for his biographers, that was his Mount Everest. I mean, that was the crowning achievement of his life. And by that point, the financial reforms he had put in place as the heart and soul of the New Deal were working. You know, they, they were doing their job. The middle class was was prospering. Banks were safer. Wall Street was behaving itself. So they didn't loom very large, even in the minds of the uh, obituary writers at the time that Roosevelt died in April of 1945. Looking through all of the major Roosevelt biographies, uh, and I have them all, um, the amount devoted to the Securities and Exchange Commission, which was always my acid test, go to the index, look up the SEC. If there were a half a dozen entries, it was a lot. And in some, there were none at all. So to me, this felt like a book that needed to be written. This was such an important part of the New Deal. As, as I said, the heart and soul of what Roosevelt wanted the New Deal to be. And we take it for granted today. Historians paid little attention to it along the way. And yet it, it was um, central to how Roosevelt was seen at the time of his first two terms before the war broke out. So in order to get into the book, and the book is called Taming the Street, meaning Wall Street, tell us about Richard Whitney. Well, it's like I called Hollywood and said, send me over the best Wall Street villain you can possibly muster. And they sent over Richard Whitney. Um, Whitney actually, I'm sorry, did that. Whitney was actually a, um, a good guy in some ways. He contributed in some important ways to how our markets work today. But he was clinging to the past. He was a creature of the past. Who was he? Who, who was he? 
Richard Whitney, at the time of my story, was president of the New York Stock Exchange. He had risen to that rank as the youngest man ever to hold the, hold the post. Um, and he had earned it by right of how he led the stock exchange through the massive stock market crash of October 1929. He was only acting president at that point. The official guy was also on his honeymoon to Hawaii, leaving Dick Whitney in charge. And the the market just absolutely fell apart. Across five days, it, it, it absolutely almost ceased to function in that great crash in 1929. And Dick Whitney managed to steer it through. One of the lessons he taught us from that period was, if it is at all possible to keep the stock market open during a national crisis, do so. Because it has such um, a calming effect. It, it can combat panic. Um, the, the minute people began to suspect the stock exchange might close, they just went crazy. So he saw that just keeping it open, keeping it going, keeping the ticker clicking along, would reassure people, and he was absolutely right about that. Give us some background on him, the, you know, all kinds of things at school, where he was from. Sure. Well, he was he was a um, almost a template of Franklin Roosevelt. One of the intriguing things about this book is the way their two lives, the, the protagonist and the antagonist of the New Deal reforms, overlapped to such an incredible degree. Um, like Roosevelt, um, Dick Whitney was the son of a wealthy family in Boston, not New York, but in Boston. His older brother, uh, George Whitney, had, uh, like Dick, gone to Groton, where the, went to the same prep school as FDR, went to Harvard, as did FDR. Uh, they both did. And then uh, George and Richard both went to Wall Street. They had an uncle, Edward Whitney, who was a partner at J.P. Morgan. And there was no more formidable Wall Street institution than J.P. Morgan in that day. So George Whitney went to work for, for Morgan, soon became a very powerful and influential partner there. And his younger brother, Richard, followed him to Wall Street. And in 1912, bought a seat on the New York Stock Exchange um, and spent the rest of his career engaged in the life and work of the New York Stock Exchange, which was a uh, clubby and traditional and um, and hermetically sealed world in which he became one of the biggest men uh, in that environment. And then when Roosevelt began to push for the financial reforms that we that that I write about in Taming the Street, Dick Whitney became the rallying point for the opposition. He, he was articulate, he was calm, he was incredibly impressive physically, a very handsome man and um, you know, tall and commanding. Um, and he was able to, to become the voice of Wall Street, the face even of Wall Street. He did newsreel speeches and appeared in congressional testimony and hearings and came to embody Wall Street for the great American public. So when he spoke against Roosevelt's reforms, it was as if the voice of Wall Street had been heard. Um, Who do you blame for the 29 crash? Well, I think 
for the for the fact that the crash came in 1929, we have to blame the bankers of New York, because President Hoover, um, when he was Secretary of Commerce under uh, President Coolidge, had been viciously opposed to the wild speculation that was going on on Wall Street, and even more opposed to the fact that a lot of it was being financed with borrowed money, with bank loans. And he was stringently trying to jawbone banks into cutting back on the lending that they were doing to finance Wall Street speculation. The Federal Reserve finally got into the into the act as well in the spring of 1929. Um, having made earlier attempts in 28, 27 and 28, um, to dial back the availability of credit for Wall Street speculation. They tried to raise rates and curb lending in the spring of 29, and the market went crazy. Um, and the New York bankers, who were the primary source of loans to Wall Street, simply said, we're not going to do it. We're going to keep lending. We're not going to curb, we're not going to dial it back. And it was a defiance of, of bank regulation at the time that, that so incensed some senators that you can find wonderful uh, commentary about it in the congressional record. But that kept the, the bubble not only going, but getting bigger and bigger. So in terms of who I blame for the fact that the crash came in October of 29, you've got to blame a bunch of plutocratic bankers who thought they knew better uh, about what Wall Street needed. And it needed more credit as far as they were concerned. It needed more borrowed money. What what today is in place in the way of regulation that prevents this from happening again, if anything? Well, we do. Uh, the, some of the reforms that were enacted under Roosevelt have been our safety net over the past nearly 90 years. And one of them is restrictions on margin loans. Those are loans that investors can take out to cover part of the cost of the securities that they're buying. Under the regulations and, and legislation adopted under Roosevelt, um, the Federal Reserve was given the power to set limits on how much of the cost of your stock you could borrow. And by dialing back that limit, they could curb speculation. They delegated a lot of that power to the SEC, but that became a way to 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 you know put the brakes on uh, on speculative trading to some degree. So that's one thing that helps stop that kind of wild speculation today. I don't want to spoil a good story, but I want to jump to the end of Dick Whitney, three and a half years in prison. How did yes. he, how did that happen? Well, you know, one of the great. Uh, one of the great ironies is that uh, conservatives tended to, to complain that Franklin Roosevelt was a traitor to his class, that he had brought in all of this populist financial regulation um, in defiance of the, of the preferences of the wealthy class he came from. The real traitor to his class was Richard Whitney, because the whole time he was fighting FDR's reforms. He was secretly an embezzler. He lived way beyond his means. He loved being president of the New York Stock Exchange, and therefore, since it was a volunteer position, he neglected his own bond firm and let it uh, uh, its business dry up. Um, 
he he lived a baronial life with a country estate and a townhouse in Manhattan. He was the treasurer of the New York Yacht Club. He was the uh, on the board of the uh, Foxhounds Association. He literally rode to hounds like some Victorian squire. It was a fairy tale life, and he couldn't finance it with what he was making. So very early on, we know at least as early as 1926, he started uh, stealing a, a special form of theft uh, unique to Wall Street, where he would take securities that had been entrusted to him to a bank, claim they were his, and borrow money against them, and then spend the money, you know, the, the butler, <laughs> the, the thoroughbred horses, all of that. So he continued all through the 30s. So the whole time he is fighting the New Deal, he is breaking the law in secret. Um, his behavior during those years is such that it should have raised all kinds of red flags at the New York Stock Exchange, which kept insisting it could police itself. It didn't need financial regulation. It didn't need a federal oversight. There didn't need to be a cop on Wall Street. It could look, it could police itself. By the way, and the wit- simple yeah. numbers. Today, you know, the market's 34,000 plus. Back in 1929, do you remember the number that was the highest and how low it went? Uh, I might not have this exactly right, but, I, but I'm but i close. Uh, because the, uh, the, the, as the lowest that it went was about 40 points. And it hit that in July of 1932. And that was down from a crest of more than 300 points in the September before the bubble burst. So uh, now um, you can add, you can just about add a zero to each of those to get, you know, uh, each of those numbers would be a zero. Yeah, about a zero to get to to what it might have been in modern terms. it's a challenge to deal with the inflation that's come since, but that decline from the September crest of 1929 to the nadir in July of 1932, almost 90% from the peak to that trough. We've never seen anything like that before. I mean, pray God we never do, but, but that was the, that was the grueling, grinding, depression market that just kept falling and falling and falling despite what anybody seemed to be able to do. Because he wrote the book on Bernie Madoff, why was he able to get away with what he did all these years later if the early regulation that came about after the Securities Act of 1933, why, why was he able to do this? He walked right through a loophole left in those regulations. We had a loophole for hedge funds and those who ran them. He pretended he was a hedge fund and therefore exempt from the kind of disclosures that he would have had to make if he was running a mutual fund or any other well-regulated investment entity. I will note that in the aftermath of the 2008 uh, meltdown, which exposed Bernie Madoff, um, that loophole was closed. But that's been the history of our regulatory experience, Brian. Um, you know, the people working with Roosevelt, uh, Joseph Kennedy and Bill Douglas, for example, they could not anticipate everything 
that future decades would bring on Wall Street. Um, they, they, they built what they hoped was a flexible, adaptable um, uh, set of rules and, and, and regulations that could, that could change over time. Now, that's where we've fallen down. We haven't helped it change over time. We've, we've cut out uh, loopholes that should never be there. For example, one of the key elements that blew up in our faces in 2008 was something called a credit default swap. And a credit default swap is a derivative. They were traded heavily by banks. And in 2000, our Congress made the deliberate decision to exempt them from regulation. Define, the by the way, define a, a credit default swap. Oh, and, don't ask me to do that. It's too complicated. Or, or, or a derivative, because I, I yeah. know that that's all through your book, all these different uh, ways that people can make money. Well, not so much in this book, but, because they didn't exist at the time of Roosevelt. But, um, but certainly, uh, derivatives are simply investment contracts that are tied to the value of some other thing. So, uh, you know, a, a currency future. A futures contract uh, for currencies is a contract that whose value is tied to the value of whatever currency it's linked to. Similarly, uh, S&P 500 futures contracts are pegged to the value of the S&P 500 stocks as they move up and down. And they cost a lot less than actually buying the stocks. So it's a cheap way to speculate on the direction of investments without having to buy the, the actual investments. And you know, the derivatives market is a gigantic market now, centered largely in Chicago. Um, and it, it involves options and futures on virtually everything. We are these days seeing efforts to develop futures on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. So it's a, a derivatives have become um, interwoven with our entire financial life. Um, we were slow to regulate them. We were slow to understand that they needed to be regulated. Um, and we've done that through the years after Roosevelt. We have, um, you've been, been slow to recognize where the next financial threat would come from. I mean, I've been writing and talking for more than a decade about the need to regulate cryptocurrency. Um, long before it started blowing up with fraudulent uh, cases uh, from here to Sunday, um, it, it was a, a growing investment class that our commodity regulators and our Wall Street regulators could not agree on who should regulate them. They, you know, the commodity people said they should be ours. They're sort of kind of a derivative. And the Wall Street people said, no, they're not. They're an investment contract. And we regulate investment contracts. Well, they've argued for 10 years, and here we are with no cryptocurrency regulation and a desperate need for it with so many young investors having wandered into that unregulated market and lost their money. I couldn't help but think of, of, about something I want your reaction to because you give us very strong opinions of people who have manipulated the market. Uh, I interviewed a Wall Street Journal reporter a couple of weeks ago about Billionaire's Row, those big tall buildings in New York City and one of them, Ken Griffin, who I have no idea. I don't never met Ken Griffin, bought a two hundred and thirty million dollar apartment, four different levels of that one of those tall buildings. And I just read that he had a couple of years ago paid forty three 
million dollars for the Constitution, copy of the Constitution. What's your reaction when you know that and he's a hedge fund guy? He's worth he $35 is. billion. Dollars. He is. And oh, and by the way, I'm so glad you're focused on Billionaire's Row. It's a wonderful book. I actually uh, gave a kindly comment to put on the jacket because I loved it so much. Um, that world of real estate is endlessly fascinating. But it it is a window, as uh, uh, as its author intended, it is a window into the scale of wealth that finance is creating in America today. Um, now, I should say that if you go back on a relative basis and look at the 1920s, the unregulated 1920s, and look at the share of national income that went to the top 1% in that decade, we're back in that in that territory now. So the the power of accumulated and concentrated wealth um, is back at you know the Coolidge era uh, level. Um, the the goal of Roosevelt was to get it to level the playing field somewhat, you know, to to make it possible for ordinary Americans to participate in capitalism and benefit from capitalism. Um, not to the same scale, of course, but at least with the same freedom and protections that Ken Griffin does. Why should capitalism belong only to people like that? So um, my feelings about um, the degree of wealth that we have now um, is that, you know, good on them. I think it would be nice if they acknowledged that they built their wealth on the shoulders of public taxpayer investment in things like regulation, courts, transportation, the electric grid, all the things that make their happy little world so productive and profitable for them, we paid for. It'd be nice to thank us for that instead of queening around as self-made men. I love a line from Roosevelt, if you'll allow me to throw it out. It's so appropriate here. It was from his first inaugural address as governor of New York, which was the first major public office he held. And he, he was telling his listeners, uh, emphasizing how interdependent the world had become today. And he said, you know, the, the self-sufficient man is as extinct as the Stone Age. He said, any one of us would die naked and starved, but for the work of thousands of others who toil in our fields and in our factories and in our mines. And he said, it is only fairness that we repay that by considering their needs and their concerns. So he, so that's how I kind of feel about this degree of, of radical wealth inequality we're, we're confronting now. Um, you know, let's try to make it a little more even and let's remember what we contributed to it. As you know, because this is what your book's all about, a guy named Joe Kennedy played a big role, first chairman of the Securities Exchange Commission. But when you look at his background, and you did, he, how did that happen? It, it was amazing. I mean, Roosevelt would joke about it and say, well, I just set a thief to catch a thief, you know. Uh, but it's true. Joe Kennedy was a Wall Street buccaneer. He knew all the games that Wall Street was playing through the 1920s, and he, and he played them. Uh, he played them right up to the summer of 1933. He was involved in a pool operation to manipulate the price of a of a glassmaker's stock 
on the New York Stock Exchange and profited handsomely from doing so. And that was a year before Roosevelt tapped him to be the first chairman of the SEC. Uh, and as I note in the book, it was a choice that outraged New Dealers. I mean, Roosevelt's followers in Washington thought that this had to be a mistake. So, you know, this was a joke. Someone was putting out this crazy story that Roosevelt had picked Joe Kennedy for the SEC. But in fact, Roosevelt was very wise about what he needed. He needed someone on the SEC whom Wall Street could not dismiss, could not denigrate, couldn't say, well, he doesn't know anything about our business. He's just some bureaucrat. The other five mem the other four members of this five member body were utterly unacceptable to Wall Street. Two of them came from the Federal Trade Commission. Um, George Matthews, who was a, a commissioner, and Judge uh, Haley, who was um, the former uh, general counsel of the FTC. They were Republicans, and they were Roosevelt's Republican appointees to the commission. The other two Democrats on the commission were James Landis, who had written the laws that helped regulate Wall Street, and Ferdinand Pecora, who had run the headline-making Pecora hearings in 1932 and 33 that exposed all the worst sins of Wall Street. There was no way Wall Street would accept either of those two men as the chairman. But the chairman was going to be a Democrat because the Democrats were in charge. So Roosevelt had to find a Democrat who Wall Street could not reject and denigrate. And that man was Joe Kennedy. Now, to the public, Joe Kennedy was a Wall Streeter. He was part of the old guard. He was straight from Wall Street. Roosevelt was clever enough to know that even on Wall Street, Joe Kennedy played a solitary hand. He kept his cards very close to his vest. He uh, didn't uh, uh, He didn't play the games. He wasn't part of the club. He was an outsider on Wall Street. But to the public, he looked like an insider. And because he was a Wall Streeter, Wall Street could hardly say, oh, no, 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 not him. So for Roosevelt, Joe Kennedy bought this new baby agency, this new little puppy watchdog, um, some breathing room. It, it bought it some credibility on Wall Street until it could get its feet under itself. And although Joe Kennedy went on to a very troubled uh, and clouded career uh, after his stint as chairman of the SEC, I say in the book, and I firmly believe that his work in that nearly just year and a half period and his protection of the agency, even in the years after he left, were a masterpiece of public service. Um, I don't know anyone else in Roosevelt's circle who could have pulled it off as well as Joe Kennedy did. And the fact that the SEC got its feet under itself and stood up and started to act like the, the watchdog Roosevelt intended is largely to the credit of Joe Kennedy. You, you mentioned Picora and you mentioned James Landis. Landis becoming the second chairman of the SEC, but Pecora, where did he, where was he when he had these hearings, and exactly what year did he did he have them? Well, the hearings that what became known as the Pecora hearings were actually hearings hearings of the Senate Banking Committee, um, and paradoxically enough, they had been begun under President Hoover. Hoover was so suspicious of short selling and and Wall Street that he 
was trying to um, twist Richard Whitney's arm into undertaking uh, you know, uh, reforms in Hoover's mind that Whitney wanted nothing to do with. So Hoover actually urged the Senate to start this committee to investigate the New York Stock Exchange. It did nothing for a year. It was it was begun in early 1932, and it just wandered around. Um, you know, Richard Whitney just absolutely controlled them, uh, walked right over them. They were no match for him. But then as its remit, as its lease on life began to wind down, uh, one of the key senators on the committee uh, recruited uh, Ferdinand Pecora, who was a, a lawyer in private practice, a former DA in New York City, a very aggressive prosecutor, um, who was bored with with you know, uh, private practice in law, recruited him to come down to Washington and make the final report, do the final stages of wrapping up this committee. Well, Pecora came to Washington, but he had no intention of wrapping up this committee, and he gave it a new lease on life. Um, sending out subpoenas, conducting hearings that exposed some of the worst abuses by some of the biggest, best-known bankers in the country. And so the Pecora hearings that began when he took over in early 1933 and continued into 1934, um, his final report came out just before he stepped onto the SEC in the summer of 1934. Those hearings which make fabulous reading even today, um, were a, a catalog of Wall Street sins during the 1920s and early 30s. FDR um, started his presidency in 1933. He had how much of the Congress behind him? Well, the election of 1932 uh, gave the uh, Democrats an enormous edge, but still they did not control the Senate. Uh, they they were able to take control of the House, but they still did not yet control the Senate. Um, you know, uh, it, it's kind of remarkable when you think about it, Brian. Given the state that the country was in in the fall of 1932 in that election, it's a wonder Herbert Hoover got any votes at all, and he got millions of votes. I mean, there were millions and millions of Americans who were willing to reelect him and give him another chance. Um, so it wasn't that election which really put. Roosevelt in a strong situation with Congress. He did have the majority he needed, but it was not as strong as it would be after the 1934 midterms, which were a democratic avalanche, absolutely an avalanche. And then he himself was returned to office in 1936 with every state but two. I mean, only Maine and Vermont didn't give their electoral votes to FDR. So he started out in, in March of 1933, with a, a, a majority, um, but a, del- a very delicate one, uh, very fragile, but but strong support. But we have to say at this point that counting heads, Democrats, Republicans, the D's and the R's in the Congress of that day didn't tell you what you needed to know, not the way it would today, because there were actually progressive Republicans back then who voted as we would think Democrats would have voted. And there were arch conservative Democrats, you know, anti-regulation pro-business, who voted the way we think Republicans would have voted. So counting the numbers in the Congress doesn't tell the whole story. 
there were there were strongly supportive Republicans in the Congress who wanted business regulation, market regulation, just as uh, Franklin Roosevelt did. But by the time he took office, one of the most dramatic passages that I had to construct is that period between the election of 36 and his swearing in in March on March 4th of 33. I mean, the election of 32 and then swearing in 33 because the world was going to hell in a handbasket. The banking system in the United States began to crack in February of 33. Big bank failure in Detroit scared the bejesus out of people and people started pulling money out of banks all across the country. Uh, There were runs on banks in Omaha, Los Angeles, Topeka, all around. And by the time Roosevelt was sworn in at noon on March 4th, there wasn't a state whose banking system was open and functioning. The New York Stock Exchange itself had had to close because it can't pay for stocks if the banks are closed. So this country did not have a functioning banking system the day FDR took office. That's how perilous it was. Against that backdrop, he had all the support in Congress he needed because it didn't matter what party you were, you recognized that this nation was circling the drain if it couldn't get its economy, its financial circulation going back, it was as if it had had a heart attack and its circulation had stopped. So he had all the support he needed in that great hundred days of legislation that he undertook after he was elected. Let, after me, he was let me hesitate a minute and ask you some things about you. Uh, whatever got you interested in this complicated subject? Well, I love financial history, and I have for decades. The, my five prior books all have a deep element of financial history. Um, my previous book was a, 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 an account of the 1987 crash, which required me to reconstruct the history of those days and the, and the roads that had led to it. Um, in the White Sharks of Wall Street, I looked at the corporate raiders immediately after World War II and what an impact they'd had. So I've always loved financial history, and I have always felt that it has been poorly told. Uh, It's too often been left as a topic for academics, for securities lawyers, um, and not something that is told in a way that the average American can grasp how important it is. So my, my goal with all of my previous books, but especially with this one, was to let our financial history unfold in a way where people could see the personalities, the drama, the cliffhangers, the the uh, you know, turnabouts, the the you know the 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 crook at the New York Stock Exchange who gets caught at the last minute, so that they could get a sense of how engaging and and exciting this very important element of our history is. But in your own history, Brian, Texas, Roanoke, yes. Virginia. Yeah. New York. Are you in New York now? Are you? Is that where you live now? I'm looking at New York out my window. We live on the other bank of the Hudson, right across the river in Hoboken, New Jersey. So what was the family like and how did you find your way to New York? Well, I've always loved history. I found my way to New York by way of a wonderful scholarship to George Washington University, which enabled me to go to a college I never would have been able to dream of going to. Uh, my mother was a nurse. My dad was a a sometimes salesman, but not, but often out of work. So it was an enormous step up the 
social escalator for me to be able to go to a college like GW and get my education there. Um, that's where I first got in, uh, engaged actively in journalism, although being a journalist had been a lifelong dream of mine since high school. And um, that, that education helped me step into that dream world of being, being a journalist. But then I married a lovely, lovely guy, 54 years now, I'm proud to say, and his father was one of the key influences in igniting my love of market history. His dad had started work on Wall Street at the age of 14 as a runner. These were the little messenger boys who carried stacks of stocks and bonds from one brokerage house to another as they were bought and sold. Um, Larry's dad started out in that business, worked his way up, and was a customer's man for Kidder Peabody during the 1929 crash and stayed on Wall Street for a number of years thereafter. Um, he, his dad, his father, that is my husband's grandfather, had been a trader on the old New York curb exchange. These were outdoor traders who stood on the curb of a street in downtown Manhattan and, and traded over the counter stocks, stocks not listed on the stock exchange, sending signals to clerks perched in windows in the buildings up above them. And that was Larry's granddad. He was a, you know, instrumental in, in the uh, curb exchange. And when the curb exchange reformed itself and, quote, went indoors as the American Stock Exchange, his role uh, produced a seat on the American Stock Exchange, which Larry's uncle ran for many years. So I married into a family with deep, deep roots in Wall Street history. And I just fell in love with it. I, would, I just love talking with Pop about um, the, those days and the and the uh, uh, what it felt like and how it what it like I remember him telling me that the worst years on Wall Street were not the crash and it wasn't the depression the worst years were during the war when the economy was recovering uh, people had money to spend prices were going up but nobody was investing on Wall Street the the memory of the crash was too recent. Nobody trusted the street. They were they were uh, you know, shy. Average Americans were shy of investing. And he said there was one week where his commission income was like two dollars and fifty cents. I mean, for the whole week. And he said that's when he realized he had to he had to leave the street. That he just couldn't make a living there anymore. So that that experience uh, of interacting with him and all the the wonderful decades we had him with us. Uh, really was was what ignited and, and fed my interest in financial history. What of all the books you've written and the time at the New York Times and reporting all that, what would be, in your own mind, the high point, the thing that you got the biggest rush out of? Oh, wow. Well, it was pretty heady making a movie with Robert De Niro, I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> when HBO adapted Wizard of my book, um, Bernie Madoff, The Wizard of Lies, as a movie, they, for some reason known only to heaven, draft, you know, cast me to play myself as the reporter who interviewed Madoff. And so there I was on a soundstage in Long Island interviewing Robert De Niro as Bernie Madoff. I'll never forget that. But that was, that was a bizarre anecdote. That was like a chapter from someone else's memoir that accidentally <laughs> dropped into mine. From a professional standpoint, there's really no doubt that the most satisfying work I did 
was in 2004 and 2005, investigating financial organizations that were ripping off American service members. Um, I stumbled across the story, uh, got a tip, uh, one that I was initially very skeptical of, and started work on it, digging into what kinds of financial products were being were being sold to American service members and how they were being sold, the deceptions and pulling rank and all sorts of, of um, uh, inappropriate and abusive behavior. And it led to a long series of stories. Obviously, I was very proud to have been the Pulitzer finalist for that series, but even more proud that it produced reforms in the Department of Defense, um, legislative changes in Congress, and tens of thousands of dollars of refunds for American service members. Um, I, I'll never do anything that will make me as proud as, as that body of work did. Going back to the book, um, the longest serving Supreme Court justice in history, William O. Douglas, plays a role in your book. What was it? He does. He was the third and most consequential chairman of this of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, a, a, aroused about a rowdy and uh, and abusive and abrasive personality, but extremely committed to Roosevelt's reforms. And he was brought to Washington by Joe Kennedy. Um, Jim Landis recommended him for the job, but Kennedy hired him to do a, a, a mandated research into corporate bankruptcies that Congress had told the SEC it had to do as one of its very first uh, missions. And Bill Douglas uh, was on staff under Joe Kennedy. When Joe Kennedy stepped down and the gavel, the chairmanship was handed to Jim Landis, Joe Kennedy went to FDR and said, you know who should fill my seat on the commission? Is this young Bill Douglas. Put him in there. A professor. And, a professor. Yes. At this point, he was still a professor at Yale. He was on the Yale Law faculty. He took a leave of absence to take uh, this uh, commission seat. So he became um, the, I think, I think I'm right in this, he would have been the sixth commission. So the original five, and then uh, Douglas would have filled Kennedy's seat when he stepped down. Um, maybe, maybe a bit, maybe a bit out of date about that, but he was one of the very early commissioners. He served on the commission while Jim Landis was chairman. And he and Landis were like chalk and cheese. I mean, they just almost magnetically repelled each other. Completely different personality types. And Douglas came to feel that Landis was too much of a, uh, too persnickety. He was involved in writing the rules and not out there defending the agency to the public. And so Douglas took on that role as commissioner. He was out giving speeches that just blistered Wall Street and told them they better you know, pull up their socks and change their ways and get, God, get right with God. So when Landis stepped down as chairman in, 19, in September of 1937, um, Douglas was the last man on the, on the planet that Wall Street wanted to see as SEC chairman. So uh, he's the man. That let let me ask you about Landis. What's his background and why did he go to jail? Landis did not go to jail. Landis was the second chairman of the SEC. He didn't go he, at all. Well, you're thinking you're thinking decades ahead. Yes, um, I am. Yes, he went to jail, served a very brief 
prison term and lost his his law license for failing to pay his taxes. I I note in Taming the Street, he had this very close relationship with Joe Kennedy, and Joe Kennedy tried desperately to straighten out Jim Landis's personal uh, haphazard life and and was only modestly successful during the years that Landis worked for him. But Landis went on uh, to remain very close with Joe Kennedy over the years. He was ghostwriting Joe Kennedy's never published memoirs. He was an advisor to President John F. Kennedy, Joe Kennedy's son, uh, on administrative and regulatory matters. Um, but then while uh, John Kennedy was in office, it was discovered that uh, Landis had gone five years without filing or paying his taxes, and it was his ruination. He was he was found dead in his swimming pool, a heart attack supposedly, but a tragic end for a really brilliant mind. He had been one of the youngest uh, law professors at Harvard. Uh, he had the highest uh, grade score at the Harvard Law School of anyone since Louis Brandeis, the great justice of the Supreme Court. He had come to Washington under the aegis of Professor Felix Frankfurter, another giant who would go on to the court later, with two other guys, a wonderful trio, Ben Cohen, Tommy Corcoran, and Jim Landis. And they came to Washington in the summer of 33 to write the laws that Roosevelt got passed to regulate Wall Street. So he was one of the key draftsmen of the legislation that allowed FDR to tame Wall Street. An immensely talented, but immensely troubled man, whose demons eventually, decades after this period, would eventually bring him down. Where did he come from and and where was he trained educationally? He, he was the son of uh, American missionaries to Japan. He was actually born in Japan and raised there. His father was a um, brilliant, brilliant intellect, but an implacable perfectionist. I mean, the only grade he ever paid any attention to that Jim Landis got in college was a B plus he got in German. Everything else was an A, and all his father would harp on was that B plus. So Landis grew up as the son of a, of a perfectionist, um, formed a close association with Felix Frankfurter as a student in Harvard, uh, at Harvard Law School, and then stayed on as a professor, again, as sort of uh, Frankfurter's assistant on papers and uh, you know, co-authoring uh, research with him. Um, throughout Landis's life, he formed these close attachments with strong generous, warm people, uh, having never had that as a child. Uh, Frankfurter was was the first, Joe Kennedy was the second, and Franklin Roosevelt was the third. And he, he worshiped Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was so kind to him and so um, praised him to such a degree that I in the book I quote from the letter that FDR sent him on the occasion of his resignation from the SEC to go back to Harvard as its youngest ever dean of the Harvard Law School. And I I could just sense what those words must have meant to Jim Landis, who had spent so much of his youth never getting a compliment from from his own father, from someone that he loved and relied on. 
to have such beautiful and generous praise coming to him from the President of the United States. So Landis is an um, important figure in my story, um, but to my mind, not quite as consequential for the future of the SEC as Joe Kennedy and Bill Douglas were. Because of your time at the New York Times, I can't, this is a little bit off, but I want your take on it. Arthur Crock. When I'm when I'm reading about Arthur Crock, I'm thinking, well, lots of criticism today of journalists being involved, and it's just horrible. But Arthur Crock, um, tell us about um, it. Unbelievable. And I share your raised eyebrows. <laughs> I share your your bafflement and befuddlement. Uh, clearly, the ethics of journalism have uh, have changed a lot between then and now. Um, but Arthur Crock, a senior columnist and political correspondent for the New York Times, a man of enormous stature in the field, uh, without a doubt did things that today would get him kicked to the curb in 15 minutes. Um, he secretly ghost wrote a book that Joe Kennedy put out on, under his own name uh, promoting FDR's presidency. This is why Arthur Crock is supposedly impartially covering the presidential race for the New York Times. Um, that's just one of, there, there were arrangements he made with the brokerage house of Dylan Reed, which I don't focus on except perhaps in a footnote, but that, that were similarly would raise conflict of interest questions, the size of the Empire State Building today. Um, it, it was, what do you say? It was a different era. It was a, it was a time when the uh, bright line between people who wrote about policy and people who made policy was was much more smudged. Walter Lippmann is a much uh, uh, much broader example of this kind of uh, smudgy uh, role than than Arthur Crock uh, is, and I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Ronald Steele's incredible biography of Littman and Walter Littman in the American Century, which shows you the degree to which he moved from commentary to advising work almost seamlessly, minute to minute, hour to hour. Um, so it was, it, it was uh, an era when that was not looked on as much askance as it certainly would be today. I do think, however, though, that if Crock's role with Joe Kennedy, if his relationship with Joe Kennedy, which went far beyond just ghostwriting a handy piece of political propaganda for him, uh, had been fully exposed at the time, it would have been seen as improper and, and unethical even then. Um, but you know, as evidence of how different things were then, and I can attest to how different they are now, um, it was routine in the 1920s and early 30s for these cabals that are manipulating prices on the stock exchange to actually bribe reporters. Cash money, sometimes checks, the stupid ones took checks that could be traced back to them and were. Um, but reporters would, would accept bribes to write stories, puffy little stories on command to help the pool operators unload their stocks when they were ready to sell. And these were not marginal 
people, the kind who occasionally get caught by the SEC today with some tacky little newsletter or some little online site that they're that they're in cahoots with stock stock manipulators for. These were senior market reporters at some of the biggest newspapers in New York. By the um, way, do, do you buy stocks? Well, under the ethics rules of the of the New York Times, I was restricted to mutual funds hmm. and could not speculate. The Times has a the Times, and I should add, almost every major mainstream journalism organization today has very strict uh, ethical rules about what not just business journalists, but all of their journalists can invest in and what kind of uh, financial activities they can engage in. And I lived within the, the uh, brackets of those rules the entire time I was uh, working with uh, with the New York Times. Now that I'm retired, I'm free to invest a little bit more broadly, but still, just because of my appreciation for well-regulated markets, I tend to, to stay strictly within registered securities, registered mutual funds, because I think they're they make more sense. By the way, thank you for your glossary of names. I think I counted correctly 99 names. Maybe you wanted 100, <laughs> but it's nice. These are people that are in your books, and they were very involved back then. But before we stop, I want to go back to Dick Whitney. In the end, what, what, what tripped him up, and how did he get caught uh, oh, in what he was doing? It was one of those... Um, you know, it's one of those things that just proves that God has a sense of humor, Brian. You know, he, uh, Dick Whitney had managed to dodge detection um, for years. In November of 1937, he nearly hit the wall. He had stolen securities from the Widows and Orphans Fund of the New York Stock Exchange. It was called the Gratuity Fund. It was a self-insurance plan for the survivors of trade, of poor members. And it had about $2 million in investments, be $45 million today. Dick Whitney stole half of it and used it for his own investments. Now, he was a trusted member of the board of trustees of that fund. And so um, nobody questioned what had happened to the securities that had been sent over to Dick Whitney's office. They were going to be sold or exchanged for other bonds. He had been you know, given these securities in the course of his business and then never gave them back. And some young clerk, this little low-level clerk for the exchange kept saying, Mr. Whitney, could you could you please send us that? Oh, I'm shorthanded. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And he kept putting it off. Then in November of 37, he couldn't put it off anymore. The young clerk spoke up at a meeting of the trustees when Whitney wasn't there, which is the only reason he had the courage to speak up, because Whitney was a very formidable figure. And the other member said, oh, well, tell Dick to get those securities back to us. Well, Dick didn't have the securities anymore. He had pledged them for bank loans, spent the bank loan money, taken the cash that had been entrusted to him, spent that too. And he had no way of repaying the funds except to go to his brother at J.P. Morgan, far wealthier than he was, confess to him that afternoon with no preparation confessed to him what he'd done. And his brother, who was aghast, thunderstruck by the revelation, nevertheless, went to his senior partner, took out a million dollars from his Morgan account, and covered 
the theft, covered it up so that it did not become public. He saved his brother's reputation in that November. And of course, Dick Whitney made, on Thanksgiving Day, they met at George Whitney's beautiful townhouse um, on the Upper East Side. And, and Richard Whitney made all sorts of promises about how he was going to change his ways and mend his flaws and never do this again and so forth and so on. And they were all lies. He continued to steal. He continued to embezzle uh, until he was finally, after the beginning of the year uh, 1938, um, he he was borrowing money left, right, and sideways from everybody who would lend him money. It was he was borrowing from Peter to pay, pay back Paul. But one of the members of the Board of Governors hears a rumor on the street, on the floor of the stock exchange, that somebody's unloading Greyhound stock. This was the bus company back in the day. And unloading it, you know, dumping it, basically, which is often a sign of distress, that a firm is in some distress when it's shoving its securities out the door. So he, this trader, mentions it to a member of the Board of Governors and said, I think that's Richard Whitney's company. Well, it wasn't. The rumor was completely wrong. Whitney never even owned any Greyhound stock. So the, the tip that brought him under scrutiny by his colleagues at the New York Stock Exchange was false. It was, it was a, a spurious rumor. But once they did start to look at his finances, it very rapidly uh, you know, hurtled towards destruction. Um, auditors were sent in. They found what he had been doing. Um, charges were brought against him. He was disciplined by the SEC. And on the morning of uh, March 9th, 1938, the president of the Stock Exchange, who had replaced Dick Whitney, had to say, had to announce to the floor that he, that the firm was insolvent and that he was being investigated for uh, wrongdoing. Um, so it was a, it was one of those, you know, jokes that history plays that this man who had skated so close to the edge so many times, and even to the point of having to rely on his brother and, a, and another Morgan partner to bail him out and cover up his crime six months earlier, suddenly was brought down by um, a false rumor, by something he was he was investigated because of something he hadn't done at which point they found all that he had done. And that resulted in a, in a quick guilty plea and a trip to, to prison. Just a quick final uh, question on this. Three years, four months, whatever, in prison. What did he do for the rest of his life? And how old was he when he got out of prison? Not sure quite how old he was. I could, I could do the calculation. He was 41 in 1930. So by 1940, he would have been 51. Um, and he got out during the war, so in his early 50s, he lived very quietly. In the um, in the final chapter of Taming the Street, I I bring all of my characters up to date, and you can uh, readers can there find uh, the uh, the quiet life that he lived. Um, he loved Harvard, and he sent in a personal report to the Harvard uh, uh, people on the occasion of one of the big reunions, and he said he was still had a, he was working very hard. He said. He had a small business sending citrus fruits to individual buyers. Um, it's very modest uh, affair. He outlived both his wife, whose trust fund he had plundered, and his brother, who had bailed him out and, and stood the disgrace of his downfall. 
um, and then died quietly in uh, in uh, suburban New Jersey. Do you have another book you're working on? Um, I I have an idea. I have a, a, <laughs> some figures from history that I've stumbled across um, that are intriguing, and that there might. I'm trying to figure out if there's enough straw there to make some bricks out of it. So I have to wait and see. I won't ask you who, but are they in the glossary? That's all I need to know. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> the name of the book is Taming the Street, subtitled The Old Guard, The New Deal, and FDR's Fight to Regulate American Capitalism. Our guest has been Diana B. Henriquez. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for listening to Book Notes Plus. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about Books That Shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. 